Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verse 14. We're going to read this morning uh, as our sermon text, uh, Leviticus 5, 14 through chapter 6, verse 7. If uh, you don't have a Bible, you can find a Bible on the tables just outside the door. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome not only to take that to use for the service, but to keep it. Take it home, write your name in the front, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we do pray that you would give us open hearts and open ears to understand uh, the words of Leviticus. Leviticus is kind of a strange book to us, Father. It's foreign. It's outside of the range of our experience. And so we pray that you would be with us as we read and as we consider and as we study it together, as we hear its message, Father. We pray that you would take it, that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would challenge us and change us and draw us close to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 5, beginning with uh, verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest." And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven." It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt, and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Have you ever been wronged and felt like you were owed something? Or uh, maybe you wronged someone and felt that you owed that person. Maybe you felt that by the wrong that you did, you had incurred some kind of a debt You felt liable to make things right. I wonder where that feeling comes from. 
Or maybe you did something and had that feeling, but you weren't even sure what, who you were liable to. Uh, who did you owe? How could you make things right? You weren't even sure. Still at other times, you, you didn't even do anything or you didn't know what you did, but you just felt like something wasn't the way it should be. That you had wronged the universe somehow, but you weren't even quite sure how. Well, we spent the last four weeks uh, talking about Israel's sacrificial system. We've been talking about things that are kind of foreign to our experience. Bulls and goats and blood and priests and offerings and sacrifices. But we've seen through each of these offerings that they, they teach us something about our relationship to our Heavenly Father. The bloody offerings uh, taught that we need a substitute, that the blameless one to take the place of the blameworthy, that we might be reconciled to our Father. We've talked about the fact and seen that Jesus is our substitute. The ascension offering taught that, that we need to commit ourselves wholly to our Father. Christ did that in his offering himself up for sin on the cross. We are called to do that as living sacrifices who take up our cross and follow Jesus. The grain offering or the tribute offering taught us that we need not only commit ourself, but our possessions to God, that everything belongs to him. And we recognize that by offering up not just ourselves in some vague way, but by offering the things which the father has given to us back to him. The peace offering taught us that through the bloody sacrifice of Jesus, we are restored to fellowship with our father. That we now enjoy the Father's acceptance. We have a place at his table and we have a hope of the fullness of that peace to come in the new heavens and the new earth. The sin offering or or purification offering taught that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So that we might be a fit dwelling place for God through the Spirit. And today we come to what is called the guilt offering or sometimes called the reparation offering. They all have two names. I'm sorry just doubles the confusion, but uh, the, the guilt offering or the reparation offering. And the guilt offering teaches us that reconciliation with God and reconciliation with men go hand in hand. That the reconciliation to our Father that happens through the bloody sacrifice of Jesus leads us to pursue reconciliation with one another. Teaches us, as John says, that We love because God first loved us, and whoever loves God must also love his brother. As we move through the sacrificial system and the different sacrifices, we also learned or saw different models uh, for understanding sin and how to deal with it. Think about it. The the bloody offerings uh, look at sin as transgression that must be punished. The peace offering looks at sin as bringing alienation that needs reconciliation. The purification offering looks at sin as as a disease or a contagion that must be cleansed. And the guilt offering looks at sin as a debt that is owed and must be paid. Well, there are three uh, big points on our outline this morning. Um, You can see it on the back of your bulletin. First, we're going to look at some of the details of this guilt offering. What is it? Why was it offered? What does it accomplish? What's it about? Then we'll step back and we'll look at how the guilt offering relates to history, uh, relates to what we call redemptive history, God's dealings with his people from the garden to the cross. 
And finally, we're going to work through uh, the implications of the guilt offering for us today on this side of the cross. And so our outline, you can see it's uh, desecration and discord at the altar, desecration and discord from the garden to the cross, and then holiness and love in the church. We'll talk about how those things fit together. First, desecration and discord at the altar. The guilt offering brings two things together that are seemingly unrelated. So if you look at chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, uh, they talk about committing a breach of faith in the holy things of the Lord. The, the holy things right, are things which have to do with the temple or with priests or with the offerings. But Leviticus 22, later on in Leviticus, has this extensive discussion of who may eat of a holy thing. Um, the, you know, when you brought your offering to the priest, some of that offering was given to the priests as their food. So in Leviticus 22, a holy thing, part of that, the priest's food, must only be eaten by the priests and those in their household, and then only if they're ritually clean. And Leviticus 22 also says, if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, they weren't supposed to, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. That echoes some of the language here in Leviticus 5 which likely means that Leviticus 5, when it talks about a holy thing, it's also talking about the same thing, the the food of the priest. A holy thing was the portion of the offering given to the priest as his food. Okay, so, so what? Well, the idea is here, what happens when a common person or even an unclean person eats food that is holy, that had been given to the priests alone? Well, they've desecrated that food. The, the, to desecrate something means to desacralize it. It means to, to treat something that is holy, sacred, as if it were not holy. And it was serious in Israel to desecrate one of the Lord's holy things. And so the Israelite is told to bring a ram as his compensation. Notice the debt language. He brings a ram as his compensation And uh, the the word compensation actually is the same Hebrew word for guilt offering. So guilt and compensation, two sides of the same coin, right? If you incur guilt, you owe compensation. Notice also this ram that they they are to bring is valued in silver shekels. Again, it's the idea, the idea of the ram. Ram is paying a debt that you owe to God. Sin puts us in debt to God. Notice, though, that the individual is not only to bring a ram as a guilt offering, but he's also to make restitution to the priest, according to verse 16. He's taken something that belongs to the priest. Now he has to restore what he has taken. Then we have chapter 6. And here the sin doesn't seem like it relates at all. It doesn't seem like desecration, at least. The person took something that is his. Maybe he somehow stole something that his neighbor had given as a deposit or a security, right? Your neighbor gives you uh, his goat to keep while he borrows your ox to plow his field, and you decide that you're going to keep his goat and call it yours, right? That's the kind of thing it's talking about there. Uh, maybe, though, he found something that his, uh, was his neighbor's, and he kept it for it himself, you know, finders keepers, that's the way we call it. And, uh, or maybe he just straight out robbed him. But notice these things are not temple matters at all, right? These are just common, ordinary, everyday property disputes. But then Leviticus adds in chapter 6, verse 3, that this person who stole these things lied about it, swearing falsely. 
Well, when people swear, they swear by something. An Israelite would have sworn by God's name. So to swear falsely by God's name is, again, it brings us into the realm of desecrating something that is holy, desecrating God's name. In both, in both of these instances, then, in, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, we have the consecration or the, the desecration of something holy and discord that results among men. The need to make restitution to people who have been harmed by your sin. The question is, why deal with these things together? I mean, why desecration on the one hand of holy things and discord among people? Why not just deal with them separately and make it neater, cleaner, easier for me, right? Well, we're going to talk about these two things together. That's what this offering is about. That uh, our, our vertical relationship with our Father and our horizontal relationship with fellow people made in His image, these two things are connected. We're going to see how intimately they're connected. First, we'll see how they began to unravel together from the very beginning from the garden up to the cross. And then we're going to see how God is putting these things back together in light of the cross through the gospel in the church. So first, kind of a historical overview, looking back. In the beginning, of course, in the garden, there was peace, there was harmony, there was love. Uh, Humanity was living in fellowship with their heavenly father, fellowship with one another. Then humanity, human beings, Adam and Eve, eight of the holy things of God. Now, uh, you may wonder, okay, how is the forbidden fruit holy, right? Um, But remember that that tree wasn't bad. It wasn't that there was something wrong with the tree. God had made it, but it was holy. God set it apart. It was off limits. God said, don't touch this tree. So here was food that was off limits, and Adam and Eve took that food. They stole it and incurred a debt, so to speak. They desecrated the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, Adam, like uh, the later priests with the tabernacle, he was commanded to keep, quote, keep, that is to guard the garden. Adam was called to protect the holy place, but instead he allowed it to be desecrated by sin. But in doing so, right, Adam and Eve not only broke their relationship to their father, but they broke their relationships to one another, right? It wasn't loving, they weren't loving one another in the midst of that. Eve wasn't loving Adam when she offered him some of the forbidden fruit. Adam wasn't loving Eve when he let the serpent lie to and mislead his bride. Notice the result in their relationships, right? The the very first result was blame. Adam begins to blame Eve for his sin. And then Eve seeks, we're told, would seek to rule over her husband, but he would rule over her instead. There's discord in the marriage. But things only get worse, don't they? You turn the page to the next chapter of Genesis and humanity's alienation from God quickly results in the first murder, which spun off into a world full of bloodshed. Often we don't realize it, but in, uh, in Genesis 6, verse 11, uh, the reason given for the flood was that the earth had become corrupt in God's sight and was filled with violence. Right? Humanity's relationships to one another had disintegrated And the world, rather than full of love and mercy and grace and kindness, was full of violence and murder and anger. And the sin debt was piling up. Well, what's the point? The point is, the moment humanity's relationship to God was broken, human-to-human relationships began to go downhill as well. 
And this is what we see all around us, right? Every time we turn on the, the news, theft and murder and adultery and anger and hatred and racism and prejudice and exploitation and oppression and abuse, our world is filled with broken human relationships. But if we understand those rightly, these broken human relationships are symptomatic of an underlying broken relationship to our Father. The two go hand in hand. In the people of Israel, in the nation of Israel, God begins to put things back together. He, he begins to restore humanity to himself through calling Israel to himself. And he then begins to restore order in the human sphere through giving Israel a law. You know, one of those laws in particular stands out in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And it's one we all know very well. And it's the best known verse in Leviticus. You know it. You don't even know you know it, but you know it. It's the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's from Leviticus. And God was beginning to put humanity back together. And he calls them to love. And as he reconciles people to himself, he calls them to live reconciled lives to one another as well. Of course, God's not naive. And he knows people are going to continue to sin and they will continue to desecrate his holy things and violate one another. And so God gives them the guilt offering. And through the offering of a ram, their desecration is forgiven. And through making restitution, their relationships are restored. And through the ram and the restitution, their debt is then paid, cleared. The only problem is, as you continue reading the story, right, Israel's violence only grows. Eventually, even the kings of Israel would kill those who were meant to, they were meant to protect in order to steal forbidden fruit. Think about the, some of the stories from the scriptures, whether David with Uriah and Bathsheba, or Ahab with Naboth's vineyard. Ahab uh, wanted Naboth's vineyard, and so uh, he ended up having Naboth killed so he could take his vineyard for himself. Jeremiah tells us, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And maybe the scariest part was Israel thinks that their relationship to God is just fine. Eventually, God prophesies uh, about Israel in the book of Micah. And God says in Micah 3, look, you know, you, you practice wickedness in the human sphere. You detest justice. Your judges take bribes. Your priests and prophets are corrupt. And yet you claim that I'm going to protect you? Not so. Right? You will be judged and your land will come to ruin. And if you, again, continue following the story, you know that's exactly what happens. Eventually, Israel is removed from the promised land. They do face God's judgment, uh, both for their desecration of God's holy place on the vertical plane and for their injustice with one another on the horizontal. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Just as the uh, expulsion from Eden isn't the end of the story, the expulsion from the uh, promised land is not the end of the story. Eventually, God sends his son, Jesus. Jesus comes as a true Adam to do what Adam failed to do. He comes as a true Israel to do what Israel failed to do. He comes to love God and neighbor to the full. Now, Jesus neither desecrates what was holy, uh, nor does he practice injustice or violence. In fact, Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend, and that's what he came to do, to love us to that extent. When we failed to give our obedience to the Father, we became liable to the Father. We owe him our obedience. Jesus came to make restitution for us. 
He said, behold, I come to do your will, O God. He offered his obedience in place of our rebellion. And Jesus also offered his life to the Father as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. He came and he suffered violence at the hands of men. What little he had in life was taken from him in the end. He knew theft. He knew betrayal. He knew injustice. He knew abuse and oppression. He suffered at human hands. Every aspect of the brokenness of human relationships. But he comes as our guilt offering. In fact, Isaiah 53 says as much. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And so Jesus fulfills both halves of the guilt offering. He makes restitution to the Father by his life. He makes atonement by his death. He pays the full debt that we owe so that we are right with the Father. Which means our righteousness, our rightness with God, is not in what we might do or might not do or what we fail to do, but it's in Christ, our guilt offering, who makes us right with the Father. We can go further, though, as we look at Jesus, because Jesus promises that all of the wrongs people have suffered in this life, he will make right on the last day, when Jesus puts the world back together and wipes the tears from every eye. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice with the Father, and he is our hope for restored peace with our neighbor as well. Jesus has fully accomplished the work of reconciling us to the Father, but... It would be a mistake to think that, therefore, there's nothing left for me to do. Oh, there's nothing left in terms of our reconciliation to the Father. There's nothing left in terms of our salvation. There's nothing left in terms of the, the debt we owe to God. Jesus has paid it all. There's nothing left in terms of atonement. There's nothing we can give to God to ransom our souls, right? Jesus has done that. But now that Jesus has reconciled us to the Father... Inasmuch as it depends on us, we are called to live at peace with all men. Which brings us to the church. We're going to talk about three things here in light of the guilt offering. uh, Making things right with our neighbor. Making things right with our father. And making things right when you're not even sure what's wrong. First, making things right with our neighbor. As we think about this, I want you to... Think about this verse in its relationship to the guilt offering in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, we read it earlier, says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. In some ways, that's the essence of the guilt offering, isn't it? Reconciliation to God includes, necessitates, requires, goes hand in hand with reconciliation to men. Or we could put it differently, as the reality of reconciliation with God gets hold of our hearts, it should spill over into our relationships with people made in God's image. You know, there's sometimes an error that Christians fall into that we think, well, I can be a Christian and not really worry about my relationships with the people around me. God loves me no matter what, right? Yes, but our communion with the Father will suffer if we ignore enmity in our relationships with people. You know, sometimes uh, we become a Christian, someone becomes a Christian, and some of their relationships go south, and uh, we blame it on the other person. 
right? Maybe this happened to you when you first became a Christian. Maybe you know someone around you. We say, well, they just don't like, like me now because I became a Christian. They're antagonistic to the gospel. It's their problem. And, and sometimes that may be true, right? But sometimes it's just because when I became a Christian, I became an arrogant jerk, right? Because suddenly I have it right, right? And they're wrong, and I start telling them that repeatedly and regularly and often. And they get annoyed. It's not the gospel that was offensive to them. It was me. We're too quick, aren't we, to blame others for problems in our relationships, The guilt offering teaches us that pursuing reconciliation with our Father goes hand in hand with pursuing reconciliation with the people around us. If possible, Paul says in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And this particularly means making amends for any harm that you might have caused. If you are offering your gift and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go, Jesus says. Go make things right. In the guilt offering, the Israelite was required to restore whatever he might have taken, plus one-fifth, 20%. He made restitution, right, by restoring what he had taken and paying reparation for damages done. You may remember Zacchaeus in the New Testament. There's a song about him, you know, it's in your heads right now, half of you. Zacchaeus, in his zeal over having Jesus as his dinner guest, what does he say? He says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Fourfold. Can you imagine every debt you've ever incurred you had to pay back four times over? Fourfold. What liabilities have you been racking up in life? I mean, how have you harmed the people around you? Have you been under the impression that as long as I ask God for forgiveness, I'm good, right? I said sorry to God. It doesn't really matter that they're still mad at me. Or even as long as I say I'm sorry, I'm good. I mean, notice the Israelite was not just to say he was sorry to the person he sinned against. He was to make restitution. He was to make things right. I think this is a challenge to us. I I mean, you mean I have to go make things right with people? Yes, John goes so far as to say, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love God, love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And of course, part of loving someone is making things right when you've harmed them. See, if reconciliation with God is taking root in our hearts, it should drive us, in as much as it depends on us, to pursue reconciliation with people made in God's image. Now, maybe your heart isn't there, and maybe uh, you're afraid of how people might respond. If I actually go apologize to this person, what are they going to think? Maybe you're afraid of losing face. Maybe you're afraid of rejection. Maybe you're afraid of loss. Well, remember the extent to which God went to pursue reconciliation with us when we were the ones in the wrong, not him. And don't use that as a guilt trip, right? Well, God did this much. I guess I have to do that too. That's not helpful. No, use that as medicine, right? To heal your heart, to bring you peace in your fellowship with your Father, to give you hope in the world being made right by Jesus at his return. And as the love of the Father fills your heart, you will learn to love others as the Father loves you. Are there ways in which you have harmed your neighbor and need to seek forgiveness? 
And that's a question only you can ask. I can't, or you can answer. I can't answer that for you. Is there a, a constant low-key tension between you and a coworker? Have you had a falling out with a friend and you've decided it's just not worth making amends? Peace with God does not mean that we can ignore peace with our fellow man. It's not always possible, of course. Reconciliation is two-way, but Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's making things right with our neighbor. What about making things right with our father? You see, there's another error. Uh, The Christian error often is, I'm right with God, it doesn't matter what people think. But there's a non-Christian error, right? That says, I don't have to worry about God. As long as I have good relationships with the people around me, uh, if there's a God, he should be happy I'm such a good person, right? Again, maybe it's obvious, right? But the guilt offering speaks against this. It does advocate reconciliation to those around you, but in the context of reconciliation with our Father. You know, when we sin, we break God's law. We may hurt others, and and we should make things right if at all possible, but when we sin, we sin against God. And the most striking statement about this in Scripture is when David prays after having killed Uriah and stolen his wife, David prays to God and says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How can that be? I mean, you know, he, he, he murdered someone, he, he committed adultery, he stole the man's wife, he tried to cover it up and lie about it. He was unfaithful to his own nation. He was supposed to be off having war anyway, defending his nation, but he wasn't. David had all kinds of sins against all kinds of people in that passage, right? Well, when we, well, when we sin, sin is, is breaking some standard, some transcendent standard, some transcendent law. If there's no standard and there's no law, there's no sin, right? Sin requires a standard. It's breaking of some kind of a standard. And this is where, you know, some in our culture stand, right, where we don't really believe in any kind of God-given standard, God-given law, uh, so we don't believe in sin. Because if there's no God and there's no God-given law, then there is no sin, right? Uh, Then your behavior is not sinful. It, It may be more or less helpful, but of course, if you don't want to be helpful, then there's no standard to tell you otherwise, Sin is always and only against God. It actually doesn't make sense to say anything but against you, and you only have I sinned, because it's your divine standard that I have broken. And so if when I do wrong, I'm breaking God's law to love my neighbor as myself, then I'm liable not only to my neighbor to make things right with him, but also to God, which means I need not only to make things right with my neighbor, but with my Father in heaven as well. As much as we would like to deny God's law and and get rid of the sinfulness of our behavior, the problem is, of course, our consciences constantly tell us otherwise. And twice our passage talks about realizing guilt. And while the word guilt speaks uh, to something objective, our having broken God's standard, our liability, realizing our guilt is subjective, right? It's, It's most often a sense of Guilt or guilty feelings, right? You realize your guilt. You feel, oh man, what did I do? The only way to deal with that sense of guilt is through forgiveness. Hence the guilt offering. They were not only uh, to make restitution with men, (coughs) but they were to bring a ram without blemish, 
And the priest takes the ram and makes atonement, the blameless dying in the place of the blameworthy, and the individual is forgiven. Okay, that's back then. They felt guilty. They realized their guilt. They could go to the priest. They could offer a ram. What about today? What about us? Well, the New Testament tells us, actually, the blood of bulls and goats and even rams doesn't take away sin. Rather, it pointed to Jesus, our guilt offering, who takes away our sin. What must we do then to be made right with the Father? We can come to the Father through Jesus, our great high priest, confess our sins, and trust in his sacrificial death to make things right with the Father, that he is the unblemished lamb who removes our guilt. We come, we confess, and we trust. And as people in a fallen and broken and messy world, as much as it depends on us, we should seek to make things right with our neighbor and we should seek to make things right with our Father through confession, and through trusting in the work of the one who alone can make us right by the blood of his cross. What about if you don't know what you've done? Right? How, how do you make things right when you're not even sure what's wrong? You may have noticed, I skipped over a little section here. There's some verses in Leviticus 5. We've talked about committing a breach of faith in 5, 14 to 16. We've talked about when you steal something in 6, 1 through 7. But what about these middle verses in verses 17 to 19? What's odd in those verses, they're kind of sandwiched in between there. What's odd about them in context is they say nothing about desecration, nothing about discord, uh, nothing about holy things, nothing about theft, nothing about reparation, nothing about restitution. In the middle of the guilt offering, right, they're right there, but they have none of the characteristics of the guilt offering. The emphasis of these verses, actually, in 17 to 19 The emphasis of those verses is that someone breaks one of God's commandments, though he did not know it, though he did not know it. In fact, it's unclear in in English, but that phrase, though he did not know it, right, is repeated twice in these verses. He didn't know what he did. He didn't know what he did. These verses are talking about someone who did something wrong, didn't even realize it, but then he realizes his guilt and begins to feel guilty. And the commentators all say that what's going on here is that if someone starts feeling guilty but doesn't even know why, notice this is the guilt offering, right? Verse 19 says it's a guilt offering, but there's no restitution. There's no restitution because the person doesn't know what he's done wrong. You can't make restitution if you don't know what you did wrong. So this person just has this vague sense of guilt. I know I've done something wrong. I don't know what it is. And sometimes we think... I don't know of anything wrong in my life, so I must be in the right, right? I mean, I, I, I can't think of anything I've done wrong. I wish that were so, right? But Psalm 19, among other places, Psalm 19 says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Hidden faults. You know, sometimes it, it's obvious how we've sinned, right? We've wronged someone. We've harmed them. We, we need to make restitution, ask God for forgiveness through Jesus. Okay, that's easy. But the truth is we have lots of sins that we don't even realize, Maybe you have a vague sense of guilt that overshadows your daily life. For some, this guilt is kind of this background, low temperature, constant sense of failure. Something's not right. For some, this guilt is kind of in your face, crippling. I don't know what I've done, but I'm sure God is out to get me for it. If Israel, if an Israelite had this sense of guilt, if they realized there's something I've done wrong, then they brought a ram to the priest He made atonement for their sin, and you were forgiven from your hidden faults, whatever they might have been. 
It's actually a very pastoral thing uh, for the priests, right? Think about it. People live with guilty consciences every day and, and don't know what to do about it. Well, they could do something in Israel. They could, they could bring their offering and have their guilt forgiven. Well, what about us? Jesus is our guilt offering, right? We've said that again and again. He has made atonement. He has brought forgiveness. Sometimes we still live under a burden of guilt, don't we? Sometimes we feel like we're, we're liable for something. We're not even sure what. Well, confess your sin to the Father, right? Trust in Jesus, our sacrifice, that his blood truly takes away sin, even hidden faults, even things you don't know, even things you can't confess. You know, there, there are people who, who get obsessed with confession and they want to confess every little thing that they've ever done and they, they just keep going through the list to make sure they haven't missed anything. You know what? God, God is willing to forgive us, even from hidden faults, even from things we don't know. We can come to him and say, Father, forgive me. For all the sins that I know I committed today and all the sins that I didn't know that I committed today. And he's ready to forgive. And the Spirit is ready to cleanse our consciences as we trust in Jesus. You don't need to live under a burden of guilt any longer. The blood of Jesus cleanses us even from hidden faults. Jesus has made us right with the Father by giving his obedience as restitution for our rebellion by offering his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Paul says now in, in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the light of that peace, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would that you would allow the reconciliation that we have in Jesus, the forgiveness that is ours in the cross, to sink deeply into our hearts, that we would know that through Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven. The ones that we know, the ones that we don't know. You have cleansed us by the blood of your Son. You have paid the debt of sin that we owe. We are now forgiven through him. Help us, Father, to look to him, to trust in him, and then to rejoice in him in the freedom of knowing that our sins are forgiven, our guilt is taken away. Father, out of that sense of joy, enable us to go and seek reconciliation with those around us. Enable us to seek to be at peace with all men in as much as it depends on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.